0: Open your Bibles, if you would, Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four. We're continuing in our study of this incredible letter, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus, of course, a city in what is now modern Turkey, along the southwestern coast, um, had been, prior to the first century, a major economic center, a big port city. Uh, the port had. Um, become silted up. It was no longer a functioning port, but it was still an extremely important city, but now its whole economy, its whole culture revolved around the great temple to Artemis, or Diana in some translations. Um, If you know the story in Acts 19, when Paul went there and began to preach the gospel, and it was perceived that the, the Christian faith would be a threat to the functioning of this great temple, the whole city was in an uproar, it said, and cried out, great is Artemis of the Ephesian, literally for hours. So it was a big deal. The city revolved around this magnificent, huge temple. But despite that, a strong church had grown there, had been planted there and grew rather quickly. One of the strongest churches of the New Testament period, well into the 4th and 5th century, Ephesus was a key church for the body of Christ. So now Paul writes to them. We've already seen he wrote to them about their status, their standing as adopted children, members of a community, the household of faith, members of that household. Uh, we are his people. That is the message Paul began by impressing to the people of the Ephesian church. We are the people of God. As Peter puts it in his epistle, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he's also been making it clear, we've seen so far, that that has relevance both to us individually and corporately. And blending those ideas together has a lot to do with what Paul has been saying up to this point. And we've come to the point where we've started to ask, well, with all this good stuff being given to us, citizenship, adoption, membership in a household, what's, what's our part of that? What's our response to that? And we looked last week at the idea of our walk, how we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. So we've been called into these things, we've been called into the community, called into the family of God. We need to walk accordingly. And that's a dynamic process. That's what we looked at last week. How that idea of walk, it's dynamic. The whole of our lives being woven into this journey. It's a journey that brings us closer to Him. Again, both individually and corporate. And last week we ended... At verse 13, and I had intended to start from you know, the next verse, but over the course of this week, just going back and looking at the text, I really would like to back up just a little bit and cover a little bit that we ended with last week again. So we're going to read beginning at verse 11, from verse 11 through verse 16. Again, this is Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Excuse me. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him, who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Father, we thank you again for your word. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for, Lord. You have given us, Lord, life and health, Lord. Everything that we have, Lord, we know is a gift from you. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks truth to our hearts. And so we ask simply this morning that our mind and our hearts would be open to your word, that both as it is spoken and that as it is heard, it would accomplish your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So Paul's writing about the growth of the church, our participation in the growth of the church, part of our response to all he has done to us. And the passage falls, if you look carefully, into three sections. In the first section, Paul talks about what God has done, what he has given the church to facilitate its growth, the gifts of certain ministries in the church. The second thing, Paul expresses the intended result of that growth, what that growth should look like, right? And then the third thing, the third thing, is how that works. What's the mechanism by which this growth occurs? Because it is a miraculous thing. And as we read about God's intention and we consider that we're actually part of what he's trying to accomplish, it can be kind of a head-scratcher. You're going to do that with us? You're going to do that with me? How is this possible? So Paul in the the third point talks about how this growth growth happens. So let's begin with what all he's actually given to us, to his church, to create growth. Well, he has a list, it says right here, he says, he has given some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, pastors, and teachers, right? These are gifts he has given to the church. And they're not words that we necessarily use in our everyday vocabulary, so it's worth look. Most of us don't use the word apostle in our everyday vocabulary, uh, but it is, in fact, a word that we all know um, whenever we go to the post office because it's the same root, right? The old days, we used to talk about posting a letter. That means sending a letter, and it's, it shares the same root. That's what it means. An apostle is simply one who was sent. Missionary, we would say. We would use the word missionary uh, probably more accurately in our, in our Christian conversation. Uh, the prophet, that's another word that we sometimes, I think, misunderstand. We uh, kind of say prophet, our mind goes to like a John the Baptist kind of guy, dresses kind of weird, you know, preaches kind of loud, you know, that kind of thing, right? Prophet simply means somebody that stands in the face of. And it's kind of a visual from the, from the old days of, you know, monarchs, kings and queens. And, they, you know, they didn't want to have to shout, so they'd have somebody who stood next to them, right? It was like an intermediary. The whole idea that if a person wanted to speak to the monarch, they would you know, come with their request, and then the monarch would tell the person next to him, tell him this. And that person that did the speaking, they stood in front of the king or the queen, the monarch, and they spoke on behalf of the monarch. The role of a prophet, and I know I've said this before, is best understood by contrasting it to the role of a priest. Right? The priest stands with his back to the people offering sacrifice and prayers to God. The prophet stands with his back to God, speaking the words of God to the people. Two like, different directions. So when it says prophets, it's simply those who declare his word. So effective preaching, if it's effective, if it's valid, is, is prophetic. Right? Now we say, well, doesn't prophetic have to be telling the future? It can be. We certainly have examples of, prof- of foretelling right? prophecy in Scripture, but not all prophecy is foretelling. Like my favorite example you know, was when Nathan came to David and Nathan was a prophet. That was the guy's job title. He was a prophet. Nathan came to David and he's talking about this story about a, you know, a guy with a little sheep and his neighbor takes the sheep to fix a meal. This rich guy, he didn't need that sheep, but he stole it. He stole it to fix a meal for this guy and, and David got incensed. He said, that's disgusting. This rich guy took a sheep from a poor guy to feed his guest. That's horrible. And then Nathan said, you're the man. And he was talking about David's sin with Bathsheba, which had already happened. So Nathan was interpreting for David's understanding what God thought about what had already happened. That's every bit as prophetic as anything about the future. So prophecy doesn't have to be about the future. It's simply speaking the relevant word that God once spoken. So preaching, if you will. Evangelists, that just means those who reach the lost. Those who have a special gift in speaking to the lost. Which I think brings up the point that not all of these gifts necessarily translate to an office door with a sign on it. Right? Probably the most effective evangelist I ever met was a guy named Bill. And, and Bill was a, was a carpenter. And Bill would, would pick me up. I helped him build his house. And Bill would pick me up on the way to work. And our first stop was the bakery. That's a good guy to work for. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. And we'd get donuts and apple fritters and stuff. And we would spend about 45 minutes at the bakery. And in that 45 minutes, every day, he would engage a complete and total stranger in a conversation about his faith as naturally it looked like it just came out of his very being. People were drawn to him and would open up to him and talk about you know, the things that were relevant to their soul. That's an evangelist, okay? That's an evangelist. And then pastors and teachers, those who serve specific congregations in care and instruction. So what are these things, right? Are these really offices or roles? No, I think they're more tasks. That's how I read this list, as those appointed to tasks. You know, the New Testament really isn't really big on titles, right, or offices, you know, even in some translations where it says in Timothy, Paul writes, you know, to those who aspire to the office of a bishop. Well, that word office isn't in the text. It's literally, uh, and, and the Greek language can do this, to those who aspire to the whatever of a bishop. It's like a blank spot, right? And then you have to fill it in from the context, right? Yeah. To those who, just, who aspire to the work of a bishop or the work of an elder, or the task of an elder. Because Paul says this to Timothy, he says, be diligent to show yourself approved to God, a workman, a workman. And the word is ergatis, it's where we get the word erg from, which if you're into physics, you know, has something to do with energy. I don't know what it has to do with energy, but it has something to do it. It's a measure of work, right? So it's talking about working, right? So, you know, we have titles in the church. I'm called pastor, and I'm comfortable with that. I even, on occasion, will use the word reverend in front of my name. I'm entitled to do that, right? But I do it when it serves a purpose. If I'm communicating on something formal and I want that known, I put it there, right? But when it serves a task, when it serves a purpose. So God is, all I'm saying is God has given things to the church, tasks, to be done, and appoints people into those tasks for the specific purpose of what? Building up the body of Christ. Strengthening the body of Christ. He says in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Now, that word equipping, some translations have perfecting. If that's how your translation reads, get a different Bible. That's a really bad one, right? The word that is used there, and I, I'm going to give you like three Greek words today. I'm trying not to Greek bomb you, uh, but I, I do want you to pay it. It's important. It's important. The word that is used there that is translated equipping is katartizo. Katartizo. And we've talked about the word kata before. Remember, it means against, but can also mean against like an extension ladder leans against a wall. It relies upon. It can mean reliant upon. Okay? Kat. Artizo, it's where our word art comes from. Okay? So it's according to art, which means there's a degree of craftsmanship involved. There's labor involved, usually with the hands. There's something involved. We're going to come back to this word again, by the way. There's something involved by which something is crafted or created. So God, Paul says God has given these things to the church for the crafting or the building up the fabricating of the saints for the work, theres that word work again? The work of service. So the whole idea is to bring a body of believers, both corporately and individually, to a place where we serve our proper function in the kingdom of God. The whole thing is functional. It's all about making the thing work to do the job that needs to be done. That each one of us would find his or her place, serve in that place in such a way that the body of Christ is built up. And by built up, it, it could mean numerically. I mean, it could, be, it could be a financial thing. But most importantly, when we say built up, because numbers and finances are just ways of measuring what's happening, doesn't say we're necessarily doing the job. They're just data points, right? The growth that he's talking about here is that the body of Christ begin to reflect the character of Jesus. That is always the goal. That both individually and corporately as a body, we would reflect who Jesus is. That's the job. That's the goal. And that's why apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers are even in the church. It's for that reason and that reason alone that the church collectively and each one of us individually in our lives, in our walk, our daily walk, would come to reflect His character. And the result then, verse 13, is that we would increase, he says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that's why I say manifesting his character is the whole point. The stature of the fullness of Christ. And I'm going to suggest that this may be the greatest hurdle for the church, the American church, for the American Christian today, is to recognize that our calling and that was Paul's initial prayer, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that our calling is to do the work we're appointed to do in the church. That's a huge obstacle because of our Western individualism. We're just, we're just for lack of a better word, bred to think that way. We're raised to think that way. Let me, let me put this question another way and see, and see if, it, if it becomes clear. If I were to ask you to name, in your mind, don't say it out loud, if I were to ask you to name the biggest challenge you face in your individual Christian walk, that thing that is the hardest thing for you to overcome in your your Christian walk, I think most of us would think of what? A sin we struggle with. Or an attitude that we have. Or something that is an obstacle in my personal growth. The temptation that's, that's always in the way. I really struggle to know how to deal with that. How many of us would say, I am really struggling to know how I fit into the body of Christ to do my part in, my, in, in the congregation? I don't think many of us would think that. Because it just wouldn't dawn on us. We wouldn't dawn, I don't think it dawns on us to seeing how we fit into a body to function properly in the body so that I both individually and that body I'm a part of will function properly in the community to manifest his character. That's just not a priority for us. But it is a priority for Scripture. It's a priority for us in Scripture. We just don't tend to think that way. We tend to think of, okay, what's going on in my world? What am I struggling with? Which is valid. I mean, we should be thinking about that. What am I struggling with? What do I need to overcome? What do I need help with in order that what? That I will get to the place where I can then think about being a constructive participant. See, that's the trap. That's the trap. We think it's just like thinking I'll get everything straightened out and then I'll come to Jesus, right? A lot of us dealt with that one for a long time. It's the same idea. I'll get everything straightened out. I'll get all perfect, and then maybe I'll be useful in the kingdom of God. If that's the case, we're hopeless. It's just—it's not going to happen, because none of us are going to get there, not in this, in this life. That's part of the, the miracle that we're talking about. This is an amazing section of Scripture, because Paul is talking about God taking stuff like us, with all of our junk, and all of our issues, and yeah, we're working through them, and hopefully we're improving and getting better, and his character is being manifested in me personally better every day. Hopefully that's happening. But no matter where I am in that process, still, wherever I am in that process, there's a place for me functioning in his body. That's what Paul's talking about here. We're so focused on dealing with our own stuff that we really don't even consider our place in the body, except there's like an incidental question, right? We should be asking the question: How do I show Jesus individually? How do I show Jesus corporately, serving in the church? Let me ask you: Well, what does that look like? Okay, I'm going to give you what I think is a great example of what that looks like to show Jesus in the everyday. Chris Smith, when we talk about heart reach, we're always like pointing at Pastor Joyce, right, right, and she's really important there. She's the executive director. She keeps them going in the right direction. Keeps them in line, right? Chris Smith back there, once a week, right? He shows up once a week, and he mentors dads. He mentors dads. When people in the pro-life community coming in from the outside, when they look at HeartReach, you know what makes them go, wow? What Chris is doing. Showing up once a week, taking young men who, I don't know how to be a dad, Or, I know how to be a dad, but I know I need to be a better dad. The whole spectrum, all the way down to the court says you're not going to get your kids until you do this stuff, right? That whole spectrum, right? They come to HeartReach to learn how to be a dad. And Chris is there once a week mentoring them in being a dad. That is a manifestation of the character of Christ in the extreme, right? And there's room for more. The executive director is actively recruiting more dads to mentor so, yeah, more opportunities to be the body of Christ. That's what we're talking about, right? That we would no longer be children, right? Children. Um, this is a point of discussion in our household. Exactly where you pass from child to adult. Um, some of us are still in process. When you pass from child to adult, and my conviction is, and I, I don't know if there's any study to back this up or not, is to me, in my mind, you pass from a child to an adult when you start to realize you aren't the center of the universe, that there are actually other beings out there that are every bit as important as you are, I say that to myself every morning. Yeah, there are other people out there that aren't important as you are. Right? We're no longer to be. We're to grow in our faith, to become mature. Focus on. Others, tossed here and there by waves, inconsistent, first one way, and then another, carried about by every wind of doctrine. I struggled through the week thinking, how do these connect? How does the idea of growing up and taking our place in the body of Christ, how does that help me resist the crazy ideas, the crazy winds of doctrine that come through the church all the time? I think it's got a lot to do with identifying a counterfeit bill. You know how they teach that, right? They just show people the real bill and then when the counterfeit bill goes by, they go, that's fake, right? I think the more we are engaged in the body of Christ, the more we're involved in ministry, both individually and through the body of Christ, the more it becomes instinctive to us what is or is not legitimate in the service of Christ. But verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we're all to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. That's what it looks like. That's why God has us. He has the church. He has us in the church, right? But I'm still left with this question, how does that actually work? I mean, what's this whole thing of God taking broken, flawed vessels like each one of us? And, you know, some of us are, you know, one spectrum of the brokenness to the... But we're all still in that process of being put back together by the the work of, of the Spirit. But dealing with such broken people as we are, how can we be constructive... Right. In fact, sometimes we even um, I think can get so discouraged in our own brokenness that think, you know what? I'm just going to work on myself and I'm just going to stick with my own brokenness and hopefully I'm still saved and hopefully I'll make it to heaven and then we'll work things out. Rather than say, no, despite my brokenness, I'm going to be engaged in the body of Christ right where I am. Right. Verse 16. It's an incredible verse. From whom, This is where he tells how it works. This is the miraculous part. This is how it works. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I'm going to read that again really slowly. Please focus on each word. From whom the whole body... He's comparing the church to a body, right? From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love, okay? Credible verse. For here we learn how growth actually occurs, right? Interestingly... The word that's used, fitted together, being fitted together, that's a really rare word. It's only used twice in all of Scripture. It's a very technical word. And incidentally, the other use is in the same letter. This is a word Paul only uses twice, and he uses it both times in the Ephesian letter. Here he's using it relative to a physical body, a human body, we would presume. Over in chapter 2, he uses the exact same term relative to a structure or a building. In chapter 2, verse 21, he says, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So it's the same idea, expressed once as a, in a kind of, kind of a construction mode, once in a biological mode. And um, the word's a really long one for fitted. Sinarmologeo. I had a guy guy from Crete once tell me, if you really got to speak Greek right, you got to imagine the waves of a sea, right? And Cretans know about the language. He said, it's got to sound like this, sinarmologeo, that helped me so much when that guy said that. What I want you to hear is the very middle of that word. Sinarmologeo, that same art root. The structure of that word is built on the same word that we saw before, art. The artisan the one who crafts and brings things together. Now, we could talk about it from the medical perspective or we could talk about it from the construction perspective. I am not going to talk about it from the medical perspective. I'd make a fool of myself. Um, but I think I can talk to it to a certain measure from the constructive, construction angle of bringing things together, fastening things together as joints. As some of you may know, my father was a woodshop teacher and a good one. And he could not walk, walk by a piece of really nice furniture without going, oh, look at that, look at that. And when he always was fast, he, he, he appreciated beautiful wood, but what he always talked about was the joinery. So where we hardly ever even hear used anymore, right? Joinery, right? Um, we got some carpenters in here, right? right? Joinery. That's a trade with a certain amount of respect. That's a trade that, at least in my understanding, kind of elevates itself above the crowd. Because when you look at the mag, I guess maybe not so much today because we got all the computers that are controlling everything, but in the old days when all that stuff was done by hand and you'd see the magnificent work drawing two different pieces of wood together such that the point they came together would almost disappear. So said, my dad was good. We were so spoiled growing up because he was a teacher. We had summers off. We spent a lot of time water skiing. We had a whole group of people that skied together, a bunch of families. We were the only ones that had handmade skis because dad had made this Ski press. The press was actually more impressive than the skis. The joinery in this beautiful wooden press he had made so that he could shape these absolutely gorgeous skis, and he would laminate ash and mahogany together. That was kind of his trademark, was the ash mahogany. And then his ski was, of course, better than the rest of ours, right? He made his lighter than everybody else's by using less layers. It was thinner, but then right in the center, he set this beautiful piece of, of ash to strengthen just the center like an island. It was gorgeous work absolutely beautiful and I just from that I guess my eye came to be trained the same way to look at the work of joinery bringing things together and it causes me to think I say all that to say this about what a joint actually is a joint which is what Paul talks about here as each joint a joint is actually nothing think about it a joint is where it's more like an area or a place or a function. It's where all the other parts come together. So if you take you know, one of these chairs and you could successfully take it apart without destroying it, you could just like disassemble it, you'd have all the parts, right? Well, which one of those parts would be the joint? None of them. The joint only occurs when all the parts come together properly fitted together. Is it a coincidence that Jesus in the Incarnation chose carpentry for a profession? Now, by the way, that probably isn't 100% accurate, right? Because, Because the word that's used to describe Jesus' dad and him was tekton, tekton. It's the word from which we get the word technique, which relates right back to the word art. It's the skill by which things are brought together. And I'll suggest one more thing, and then we'll move on. I think this word occurs in the Ephesian letter because the Ephesians had a greater appreciation for the art of joining things than probably any other church. Why? What's on top of the hill? The largest Greek temple in antiquity. Looked like the temple in Athens, only massively larger. And they had watched that thing get built. That was woven into their culture. The construction of that massive temple was woven into their culture. They knew what it looked like to fit things together. I used to think those columns were like one piece and then they stood them up. No, that's not how they did it. If you've ever seen pictures of the ruins, there's all these like, don't, you know, like massive Oreo cookies laying on the ground, right? These big, huge discs. Well, if you look at those discs carefully, in the top of each one, there's a hole about the size of your fist. That corresponded to like a knob on the bottom the size of your fist. So these, these massive pieces, these massive discs were raised up and then dropped into place where they locked, right? And, and if you get a little farther in these temples, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, again, not, I don't want to dwell on it, but there's, there's some relevant stuff here. You know all those columns that you see, those beautiful straight lines? They're not straight, all those columns, none of them are straight up and down. They're all tilted. All but four of them are tilted on two axes, tilted two different angles. It's in order to make it look straight. The square lintels on the top, none of them are square. They're all fatter in the middle. to look. So that all of this work, this incredible craftsmanship, to make them look straight, make them look straight up and down. Okay? Even the pillars themselves, right? You see that, that constant taper from the bottom to the top? It's not a constant taper. They get fatter in the middle. Then they get skinny at the top. Because if they were straight, that the taper was straight, it would look skinny in the middle. All of that done to accommodate the human eye. The engineering and the architecture is incredible. Well, what does that mean in practice? It meant that every one of those discs you see laying on the ground when you look at the pictures of the roof, every one of those discs is unique. Every one of those pieces, every single piece in that entire massive temple was absolutely absolutely unique sounds to me like the body of Christ and I'll wager not a single one of those pieces of marble was perfect marble part of the skill of the craftsman was to find the marble that despite its flaws could yet function in its place together crafting these magnificent buildings that would support those huge stone lintels that sat above and the roof that sat above it. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus chose carpentry slash stonemason as his life skill because he had a church to build. And it just gives me extra confidence to know that he had a human appreciation as well as his divine understanding of what it took to bring all these things together, to fit everything together. The point is simply this. every Peace has its place, piece by piece, going up, creating this magnificent temple, requiring both engineering, architecture, and artisanship to make it happen, and Jesus had it all, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies. Every point of connection between every disc and the column, between all the columns, the foundation and the columns themselves, all of that, Every point of contact played a role in giving strength to that structure. There is something that is created when we come together in a cooperative sense. Joints, points of connection, our uniquenesses interlocking with one another, supplying something that is totally miraculous. And the result is this magnificent structure is built up in love, building up of itself in love. And the end product of that process, praise God, we're not interested in building a structure. The structure, whether it's here or there or somewhere else, is just a tool we use. It's just, a, it's just like the titles that some of us in ministry may attach to our name. It's just a tool to do a job. It is nothing more. What counts is the functioning of the body of Christ together and in that connectedness, manifesting his character. That is the entire point of the entire program. Everything that we do is about manifesting his character, it's all about showing the character of Christ to a lost and broken world. And that's why we gather together. That's why we are one body, one church. Again, I'll I'll go back to the the example of of HeartReach just because it's such a big part of what we do. It's part of our our lives. One of the things that causes people outside to look at HeartReach and, and stand there in awe is the ability of churches of vastly different theological persuasions to work together in a cooperative fashion. It is marvelous it is marvelous to see the entire spectrum of the Christian faith present in that ministry. That in and of itself is a testimony to this community of the character of Christ. And as we gather with all of our uniquenesses and all of our differences and all of our quirks and all of the flaws, we're still trying to, as we gather and we function as a body, we're saying the same thing to the world. Father, I thank you that in your word, in your word, you talk about building us together. And Father, I am so glad, Lord, that that Jesus is the engineer and the architect and the craftsman. And that our whole job is just to lend ourselves to the process. To say, I am willing to be a part of what you're doing. And then when we find that place, Father, to step into that. Let me say one more thing before before I finish praying. One more thing. The studies tell us that in the United States, about 20% of people who identify as Christians are actually a functioning part of a local body. 10 to 20%, depending on the date of the study. About 10 to 20% of um, people who call themselves Christians are actually functioning in a body. What do you call a building where only 20% of the materials are actually there? Incomplete Incomplete or ruins. Yeah. What do you call a physical body, a human body, where only 20% of the parts are there? A corpse. Yeah. I don't think that's his plan. That's not his plan. Father, I'm so grateful Lord oh, God, I am so grateful for each person here this morning, Father. I know that each person here has um, a desire in their heart to be the believer you want them to believe. And Father, I hope that we will, I pray, Father, I don't just hope I pray that we'll be able to make that connection so that it's not just you know me hoping to be the believer that you want me to be, Father, but we, us to be the believers, us to be the exact. Church, unique in every way, Father, the exact church you want us to be. Jesus, thank you that you're the engineer. Thank you that you're the architect. Thank you that you're the craftsman. Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.